4: Sunday morning, the 17th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. 65% of people want Ireland to remain neutral. That's according to an Irish Times Ipsos poll that was published in April of this year. But is it possible that two thirds of us are wrong or that we would answer differently if we took the time to step back and think this through? Speaking in France last week, the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Burns, suggested we need a new conception of what defence is. A new concept, he said. His thinking appears to be that Irish people will be happy to send Irish troops to fight in wars in places like Ukraine, helping to defend against a Russian invasion. The minister seemed to imply that if experts on war and defence gave evidence to a citizens assembly people in ireland would eventually come around and support dropping ireland's neutrality let's speak to thomas byrne who's on the line a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us where are you coming from on this minister
5: i'm not sure you, you read me into you michael quite frankly because um there's, there's no country actually uh fighting in ukraine at the moment so the idea that then ireland would somehow leapfrog them all that i said something like that that we would start
4: uh, No, I said as an example uh, in well, helping to defend in, in helping to defend a country and I just used well, Ukraine as a an bad example. example. All right, okay. Well, give us um, well give us an example. The idea then.
5: the idea that you can make that leap when no country is doing it that suddenly neutral Ireland are going to start doing that. I mean, I think it's just gross misreading what I said uh, on Friday. What I said on Friday in in France is exactly what the t-shirt has said exactly what the Tarnister said, exactly said 6 months ago. Mm. With very little controversy, um, what I said oh, there is that Irish, a bit of and I, 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 I acknowledge very clearly that Irish people do not favour joining military alliances, and that Irish people are quite happy with military, military neutrality; that it has worked well for us. What I said is, in terms of a new concept of defence, when we talk about defence or we talk about military alliances, immediately you have people like the Irish Anti-War Movement, and indeed yourself, Michael, immediately jumping to the step that suddenly we're all going out to war. That's exactly the opposite of what I want.
4: Hmm. Well, h- how would you suggest Irish troops uh, defend Ireland or another state?
5: Well, the first thing, and again, I said this uh, in my interview, is the first thing we have to defend ourselves. And what the government has done since it came to office is established the commission of the defence forces, which is looking at how we resource our defence forces here in Ireland. That's not just paying them more and making sure there's better jobs there for our soldiers, but also making sure that they have the equipment that they need to defend this country on our own, because we are a military-neutral country. And that's the discussion we're having, and we've already heard voices there linking it to the arms industry, all of this sort of nonsense. But the question is, are we prepared to defend ourselves? And that's the first thing. Um, So that we shouldn't always think of, um, when we talk about defence, when we talk about military neutrality, that the next step suddenly is war. That's the last thing I want. That's 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 exactly what I and my party have been fighting for for decades. Um, If you look back at Frank Aiken uh, a local TD in this region, he was the person who pushed nuclear non-proliferation at the UN. That's the tradition that I'm in. Um, but I also realise in this modern world that we have to, as an island, defend ourselves. Part of that, I mentioned the undersea cables, but we, don't, we, we saw during the summer, before the summer, we don't even have the radar uh, that's necessary to defend ourselves really properly. Uh, and our soldiers don't have the equipment. And that's, that's a situation that cannot, that cannot continue, and the government has decided to take action.
4: Okay. Uh, you believe uh, that in time people may vote uh, to drop Ireland's neutral position?
5: No, I didn't say that. What what I said was well, that do we you? could have. We could have. A, I said first of all, I said very clearly, citizens are not in favour of joining military alliances.
4: No, I know. Well, that's clear. Sixty five percent of people. Yeah.
5: Clear so, and so and do I'm
4: you sure. think that in time they may change their minds?
5: Well, it is possible that if we if we mm. were to discuss okay. it and think about it, but we'd have to leave that to the citizens. And I know very clearly that mm. if we were to suddenly jump in and make a change on this, there'd be a massive negative reaction from the public. And I wouldn't mm.
4: blame them. Okay, so,
5: these things are better so thought
4: I- if we were no longer a neutral company, uh, country, uh, w- what happens then? Uh, I, I mean, uh, if we were helping other countries to defend themselves, uh, would that be a, a possibility?
5: Well... The, the first thing I'd see is that, if, if that were to happen, is that if there was a problem with the undersea cables, that we'd have, we'd have helped someone else. Mm. That's, that's where I'm
4: yeah. coming from. okay.
5: Uh, we, we also have a problem. But if we America. were to
4: drop our neutrality, is, is there the prospect then of Irish troops helping other states to defend themselves?
5: Well, we've got to distinguish between neutrality and joining a military alliance. So when it comes to Russia invading Ukraine, I personally am not neutral, and if you look at all of the surveys that's done to the Irish people, they are not neutral. They support Ukraine. So there's no neutrality there whatsoever, and that's why we've been able to give a lot of support to Ukraine. We haven't given them any uh, lethal military equipment, Mm. but we have given Ukraine military equipment. It's just something non-lethal.
4: Well, I mean, there's some people who would say that uh, by uh, aiding an army that's involved in armed conflict, uh, that Ireland is not neutral uh, and if it is, if it is supposed uh, to be... Right,
5: the right, we're not neutral in that situation because it is absolutely correct that we would support a country that has been invaded. Why? Because Ireland has, since day one, fully subscribed to the UN Charter. The UN Charter guarantees each country the right to self-defence uh, and the right to protect their territorial integrity. Mm. So we're going to stand by and we have, and the Irish people have stood by, uh, those basic principles I think people can readily understand. That doesn't mean what you said at the start of the show, that suddenly we're all going to be going to war. Uh, but, Ronald, that we give help uh, and assistance as best we can. And we've done that through... So
4: we'd sent helmets over to troops, uh, as we did well, in we've Ukraine. We've done
5: that in car parts, etc. But, yeah. but we've, also mm. give, we've also led the way in supporting Ukraine's membership of the EU. We've mm. led the way in supporting uh, the but, people but of but Ireland. We're, have led but the but way in supporting we're, refugees as well. We're
4: doing, we're doing that, uh, supposedly, as a, a neutral country. So why do we need to drop our neutrality? Why do we need a Citizens' Assembly well, if we are neutral?
5: The question about... See, again, we need to have a concept of what exactly neutrality is. Because I think what what I said... Well, means,
4: utali- you know, well like, neutrality means you don't involve yourself in wars. You stay neutral.
5: Yeah, and we haven't done that in this case. But yeah, what, but exactly. My, that comes to my point. That comes so my that point means
4: the that world we're world either not scenario. a neutral country or, or the government has shown complete disregard for Ireland's neutral position.
5: No, we haven't, because we've shown complete regard for our position. As but
4: you just said we're not neutral so, in, in, in this well, dispute.
5: Well, 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 yeah, exactly. But you haven't let me come to the point of the question as to what we mean by neutrality. And what countries mean by neutrality tends to be different in every country. So if you look at Sweden, who were neutral for a long, long time, they've only recently joined NATO. They did joint military exercises with Britain and America for years and they described themselves uh, as neutral. If you look at Austria, it's neutral because... The way Russia left Austria in the aftermath of World War II was one of the conditions uh, that they would stay neutral. Yeah. Our neutrality has actually been characterised more by our non-membership at NATO, our non-membership or taking part of the European
4: Union. Well, that's an opinion, but I think that the 65% of people, it's an opinion, uh, because I think uh, something very different. I think the 65% of people who said they want Ireland to remain neutral means that if there's a a conflict, if there's a a dispute between nations, if there's an armed response, that Ireland doesn't involve itself. It stays neutral. And that, by the way, includes sending helmets to troops.
5: No, it doesn't, because if we look, if we look at the, the countries of the world, who has stood with Russia? The countries that have stood with Russia are the likes of uh, Venezuela, Eritrea, Belarus, North Korea, the countries that you don't want to line up with. It's the exact opposite of what we do here, fighting places altogether.
4: But that hasn't so, anything to do with what people understand neutrality to mean.
5: Because we stood up with the rest of the world um, apart from some, some countries that have just sat in the fence and said, no, this is actually wrong. You can't invade another country. And if it were to happen to us, we would want the same solidarity from other people as well. Our neutrality, and this is, this is my assessment of it, our neutrality has been characterised by non-membership in NATO.
4: Right. And you, you, when, when 65% of people say they want Ireland to remain neutral you think that's what they mean isn't yeah, but if you
5: look at the, if you also look at the polls as to what the percentage of Irish people who support Ukraine is it's, it's even higher than that but
4: but but, but it, do you believe that 65% of people don't want Ireland to be neutral in disputes uh, but don't uh, at the same time want Ireland to join NATO or some other military well, I, right? I, would expect, I would
5: expect that the, the vast majority of that is people who don't want us to join NATO or European defence and that's, that's exactly the fact as far as I can see it, and, and a clear majority. And that's exactly what I said the other day. And our neutrality has served us well. Um, but when I said we need a new concept of defence, is that we need to start thinking about how we defend ourselves. And that is not about wars necessarily, because mm. um, like we're at the far end of Europe, etc. That's not realistic. Mm. But what is realistic? A cyber attack. It's already happened. Um, we saw the North Sea gas pipe blown up. We've undersea cables as well. Mm. So we've got to think in terms of how do we protect ourselves uh, from from, uh, cyber threats and how do we protect ourselves from physical attacks on really important infrastructure that maybe other countries or maybe other organisations are Mm. just simply criminals. And at the moment, because we don't really cooperate um, in defence areas, except in a very limited way Mm. in the EU and under the so-called triple lock, uh, we do it all ourselves. Mm. And that's the question that I'm asking that we should think about but again, it's to ask the people to think about it in a non-political way, non-argumentative way, and in a realistic way. That it's not all about, oh, the troops are going, the Irish people are going to go to war. They're not, and that's not something that I'd be supporting.
4: Well, they might if uh, you officially <laughs> say Ireland is no longer neutral.
5: They might if we joined a European Common Defence, but well, we'd have to have a, if, if Europe decided to do that, which is n- nothing in the cards at the moment. But we'd have to have a referendum to allow that to happen. So the government simply can't take that decision.
4: That's a European defence, uh, and that's because of a commitment that was given in uh, one of uh, the referendums—the so Lisbon Treaty—and it's, referendum,
5: it treaty, and it's, it's yeah. written into our constitution. Yeah. But that doesn't so stop us. That,
4: that doesn't stop us from joining um, NATO or any other alliance. Uh, and a referendum could very easily undo that position. And I thought that was what you were suggesting—suggesting su- suggesting that we would drop our neutrality.
5: I was suggesting that we would think about these issues in a citizens' assembly and reflect on them. But that doesn't mean that i would be pushing to do it. What I'm saying is that I don't believe as a country, first of all, the government has acknowledged this, we haven't thought enough about uh, our defence and our funding of our national...
4: Well, people defense. think about it a lot. I, I, I don't know. I think there would be quite a, a lot of people who would think... Um, it's well, not very it's fair. It's not, no, no, just, they might be insulted, uh, but uh, they would certainly think it's not fair to think that they're going to change their mind because you bring in experts to tell them uh, about what happens in war when boys shoot weapons at other boys.
5: But I'm not talking about war.
4: But you're talking about dropping neutrality.
5: I, I'm sorry, Michael. I mean, I, I suggest maybe that anybody who's concerned with this read exactly what I said. Uh, I, I, the reason I said we need a new concept of defence is for these cyber security threats that we have that we defend in ourselves and that we look at And if we protecting. drop
4: okay, t- t- take that point if we dropped Ireland's position of ne- neutrality what difference would it make in, in that sense? Well
5: I mean for example in that case we'd have a lot more cooperation on cyber, on cyber threats a lot more uh, which we don't have at the moment. The other issue as well that I have
4: to now just stay with that one, please, if you wouldn't mind, because I don't I presume if we see some kind of um, uh, assault on the state, attack on, on uh, whatever it is, underground cables or, or whatever, that the Irish Army uh, can load up weapons uh, and discharge them if it's for the sake of defence.
5: This is very very simplistic, Michael. I mean, the whole point of defence is preventive. Yeah. Not about the Irish. The I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We can't have a discussion where in the, in the middle of it you drop in sort of a, off the cuff line about the Irish army discharging weapons. That's not a serious debate. That's not a debate that I'm taking well, part in. The debate I, that I'm taking part in is making sure that we protect our infrastructure, we protect oh, uh, our...
4: How? Oh, in, what what kind of, in what way different than we would do now?
5: Because, because if... The, the, the reason I raise it is because for, particularly because of cyber threats so where somebody from outside this country whether it's another country or an organization can attack your computer system yeah so that your health service for example last year yeah uh, shuts down for an extended period of time if we were part of more military cooperation in Europe we would be we would have access to the very latest technology in terms of preventative and also in terms of maybe buying products at a cheaper price as right. well so there would have more money left for education
4: okay so, so we joined it's,
5: it's not a proposal but it's one of the things that if we
4: join a, a european army we can uh, get cooperation uh, in combating cyber attacks there
5: is no european a, a army a
4: european like alliance of some There's sort no of that doesn't exist for yet. A okay army. but but that we would get uh, assistance uh, in combating cyber attacks but surely if you join such a, an organization whether it exists now or uh, not uh, then you're part of that organisation, and if that organisation uh, involves itself in armed conflict, uh, then you're part of the organisation that gets into that conflict.
5: Well, I haven't proposed joining NATO. That's not part of my interview. If we joined NATO, yes, you would have an obligation to defend other countries, and also they'd have an obligation to defend you, with necessary, too. Yeah. That's not what I proposed.
4: What are That's we joining? Who, who would be helping us? What, what organisation would we be in whereby <laughs> other countries would be helping us to yeah. combat cyber attacks?
5: Well, there's a lot of cooperation at European level in this area and there are people looking for more of it, actually. Um, now, part of the issue, can I, can I raise this point now? Part of the issue with all of this is that if we want to get involved in military operation or, uh, operations at the moment, whether it's peacekeeping or peacemaking, but the likes of which we've done for decades and nobody has any problem with, we have now what's called the triple lock. I and mean, when that was brought in, it was brought in for very good reasons. But we couldn't go abroad with our troops uh, unless we had the permission of the Dáil, uh, the permission of the government, and... Uh, mandate from the UN uh, Security Council. And that's really important. And I support the triple lock if it works well. The difficulty you have with the triple lock at the moment, and again, this is again something that I think the citizens need to think about, not politicians making proposals. The difficulty is that Russia vetoes everything, China, who knows what they would do, and at the moment, Ireland can't make its own decisions on sending soldiers abroad because the potential there is for Russia to say, no, you can't do that, because Russia is a permanent member of the Security okay. Council and has the right of veto. And that, that's just a practical difficulty at the okay. moment that I think we need to think about. It. I'm not making any proposals mm. to remove the triple lock or anything like that, but it is a problem that I think we need to think about.
4: Okay, Minister, uh, forgive me, but I, I honestly don't understand what you're on about when it, it comes uh, to cyber attacks. Uh, it, 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 if we're to get more assistance from other countries to help us combat cyber attacks. What is it you're suggesting we do? If it's not joining a European army, what is it that we would be doing? Uh, and how does, well, dropping, how does dropping our neutrality feed into that?
5: Well, there's lots of cooperation between military alliances and uh, between countries, sorry, the armies of countries that, are, that aren't actually part of NATO, that don't mean that you have to go to war, as you sort of flippantly said at the start. Yeah. But actually the armies are working much more closely together. But and can't we do that money. now? Um, not really, no. Why? We do it. we do some of it all right as part of um, uh, part of the EU, but it's extremely limited.
4: But what's stopping us?
5: Our neutrality. <laughs> and because we can't take part in the European Common Defence. So if there was a European Common Defence in relation to cyber, for example, we can't take part in without a referendum. And that's fine. That's, that's the law and the, that's a protection for the public because they demanded that protection. I certainly strongly supported that and still do. But it is preventing us getting involved in more... In more defence cooperation, and and I mean by defence as defence, as in protecting ourselves,
4: defending computers, defending ourselves against cyber attacks. Uh, We can't do that because we're a neutral country. I I just don't understand that
5: moment. It has to go. It has to get special. You know, it has to be special votes in the doll. Those type of votes are routinely opposed by the opposition. You should look at them in terms of cyber cooperation. uh, It does happen, but it's definitely very limited. But, you, but for what you think is absolutely obvious, is actually controversial uh, among many TDs and Dáil Éireann on the opposition benches and does require extra procedures because of our ministry neutrality at the moment.
4: Okay. No, I, I, I can't say I understand. Uh, but, uh, but
5: this is Well, this is the point that we need a Citizens' Assembly so that we can all understand. And I can understand a bit more because I, this, this, a lot of this stuff is all new to all of us. And it's yeah. not about as you said, it starts sending people to war. It's the opposite of that.
4: Well, I think that would probably be the outcome of dropping neutrality, but uh, I I don't understand why neutrality prevents us from defending ourselves against cyber attacks. Well,
5: it it, it doesn't, but it certainly um, restricts Ah. us in cooperating with Ah. other armies. Right, so
4: it doesn't, so we don't need to drop our neutrality to do that. Well, if we think
5: we can do it all ourselves, absolutely fine.
4: But why can not we not do it with the cooperation of others?
5: Because of our military neutrality and we can do it there are special procedures in the Dáil and we do do it on a limited basis but it's, it's not enough and it's costing more because we have to do it by well, ourselves uh, yeah
4: okay so it needs to be voted on but that uh, it doesn't mean that, it so this be, is uh, what that it's, preven- assembly but, can but that mean it's prevented but that doesn't mean it's prevented by, by b- because TDs have to vote on it that doesn't mean that neutrality is preventing it from happening
5: well, we're not part We're not part of uh, military discussions where maybe some of the latest issues have been discussed, where some of the latest technology has been discussed. We're not part of that. And my point about the citizens Assembly and what the Taoiseach has said is that we would discuss all these things okay. and get information about them and then make a collective decision. And we may not want to change, and that's fine. Um, but I think that the, the way technology is changing, the way uh, the environment is changing, the way, the, the, the way Russia has changed from being semi-reliable in terms of the Security Council to be just an obstructive presence there I think does require us to think about these things
4: Okay. Minister, thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, uh, it's uh, very interesting uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, from all of the soundings uh, that we've been getting from government, from Leo Radcliffe, from Simon Coveney, from the Taoiseach and now from Thomas Burr, we'll be hearing more about neutrality. Uh, indeed we'll be hearing more about neutrality after the break
2: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM, on LMFM.
4: Well, we did uh, invite the Minister to debate uh, the last uh, topic with uh, the Irish anti-war movement. Uh, The Minister declined to do that, uh, but we're going to hear that side of uh, the argument now. Mark Price is a member of uh, the Steering Committee of uh, the Irish anti-war movement, and coincidentally, Mark, uh, there was a a meeting of uh, the Irish Neutrality League over the weekend. Uh, What did you think of uh, the Minister's interview, and did you understand this argument that he was putting forward about not being able to defend ourselves against cyber attacks, so long as we're neutral?
6: Uh, No, Michael, and I think you correctly um, exposed the confusion at the heart. I don't think his confusion is uh, a mistake. Um, I think it's, we had a a speaker at our meeting at the weekend, Karen Devine from DCU, and she used the term gaslighting uh, to describe what's going on. Um, And really, since the 90s, uh, the two main parties have been trying to whittle down the, um, the absolute overwhelming support uh, that Irish people have for neutrality to this very mean or, or reduced definition of military neutrality, you understand. So mm. it's, neutrality is just not sending troops to war or just not being part of a particular uh, military alliance. Um, what in fact neutrality is and what it should be, yeah. and he mentioned Frank Aiken, is true political neutrality, which is using uh, Ireland's neutrality to call for consistent international law on all sides, not just selectively. Mm. Um, and I think you, you brilliantly exposed it. It's, his confusion isn't an accident. It's a, it's a type of gaslighting, frankly, which is to make us think that, for instance, the discussion about these undersea cables is somehow or other, you know, we can, we're now locked into this international network. The only way we can, you know, possibly hope to defend ourselves is by joining these vague international organizations. And and you kept getting him to the point where you had to admit he does want to abandon Irish neutrality. While, you know, they consistently go, oh, no, no, we support Irish neutrality. Uh, But you got him to the point to get it again at least three times in the interview where he had to admit that the only thing he's proposing is we abandon neutrality. Um, Because, as you say, what's to stop us defending ourselves from cyber attacks? Mm. Or even defending undersea cables,
4: yeah, um, but but, but, but it, existing it, it, existing laws is the concept of neutrality somewhat vague until you're given a real life situation such as the one in Ukraine. And as the minister says, all of the polls contradict the support for neutrality in that Irish Times poll, in that people want to support Ukraine.
6: Yes, but people want to support Ukraine, and this is it is tricky here, but. They want to support law. So, what they, what Ireland had, he mentioned Frank Aiken. What Frank Aiken did back in the 50s was not to take sides one way or the other, but to call for a legal framework to try and strengthen these institutions of international law so as there would be consistency from whatever side you're on. And, strictly speaking, to, in the current moment, being politically neutral would involve. Not but absolutely condemning uh, the the aggression of Putin and the Russians, Mm. um, but also having to to mention the fact that there's been, you know, eastern expansion from NATO um, and also the fact that in other areas of the world, Um, There isn't, for instance, much, uh, we don't hear much from our our governments about uh, arming the Palestinians or the Yemenis or the Sahel people in the Western Sahara, just to give examples, Mm. and not to descend into whataboutism, but that would be an example of political neutrality, do you understand? It would be the same spirit in which the Irish army went nobly to the Congo and Cyprus and Lebanon, um, and the Irish army was one of the few um, forces to take part in UN peacekeeping with a spotless record down mm-hmm. the years. And it was all to do with our neutrality. And that, that origin of our neutrality in the fact that our revolution uh, for independence began rejecting the kind of compromise, the Redmondite, if you know what I'm t- talking about mm-hmm. here, uh, this compromise that took place, which um, the Irish, the original founders of the Irish Neutrality League, um, James Connolly and company, uh, refused send Irish soldiers to fight in the First World War, Mm. because of neutrality.
4: Okay, but uh, if you uh, take the Second World War, had uh, the Germans marched on to Ireland, uh, well then we would have uh, been very unhappy, no doubt. Uh, But while we were waiting for that uh, prospect, uh, we were letting other people's children fight our war, were they not?
6: Let, i mean certainly uh, things are extremely complicated there was you know the air corridor over donegal for example we allowed american planes to fly into northern ireland we we as i say we were devil air sent i believe every ambulance and fire truck apart from one or something up to belfast uh, after the bombing um so there's no doubt but that this is <laughs> during these situations things become extremely complicated if you could argue that this wasn't a true derogation from neutrality, as long as um, the, there wasn't some kind of moral compromise or political corruption at a high level, um, which I just, I'm afraid I can't accept. I mean, it's, it's since the 90s that we've had this attempt to whittle down Irish neutrality, beginning with John Bruton's coalition, you know, rainbow government in the 90s, um, uh, and and absolutely bound up with EU membership. Would and, you... And the,
4: well, Okay, but would you welcome a, a Citizens' Assembly on it?
6: Yeah, uh, why not? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, discussions are great, Michael, as you know, and you're really good at hosting them, uh, if I may say so. Uh, discussions are always great, and uh, absolutely, I think... Um, I mean, I'm... I, I don't know what they're talking about in this Citizens' Assembly, um, but a discussion on this would be a great thing. Okay. And I've no doubt with, if it was a, a, a discussion, I don't know how you have a discussion with 5 million people about something, but if you have a discussion, I think that um, people and really start to think through this. They, all, they, all you can do when you discuss things is learn more, I think, mm-hmm. and you start to see more and more how what's at issue here is consistent principles. Okay. and consistent principles in favour of international law.
4: All right, I have to leave it there, Mark, for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Mark Price is a member of uh, the steering committee of the Irish anti-war movement. Michael,
2: Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM.
4: FM. Well, we've had a, a lot of uh, discussion and I think we had uh, some panic last week. Uh, at least one of our callers seemed uh, very concerned about driving without an up-to-date NCT cert. And I think there's probably reason to be concerned uh, about it because, by law at least, uh, you could face a €2,000 fine, five penalty points and possibly up to three months in prison. But how do you get an NCT cert if you can't get the test? Uh, And it could be March or April before you get a test if you were to look for one today. This has been discussed by the Transport Committee, as we heard on the programme last week. Let's speak uh, to a member of uh, that committee now independent senator jared crockwell who's on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us what advice would you give to people uh, who need to use their car but don't have an up to date nct cert
7: Being totally honest about it, good morning Michael good morning to your listeners, Uh, being totally honest about it, I'm not sure what advice I can give, I see that the, um, uh, when uh, Mr. Sam Wade came before the committee, he assured the committee that both the insurance industry and the the Garda-Shircona were somewhat sympathetic to the problems of uh, getting an NCT test that for me doesn't um, uh, cook the goose for the want of a better description I mean, sympathetic, what does that mean? Is it illegal to drive your car with those, an NCT test? Um, the problems that have been created, uh, surely to God they could have... Uh, um, seen these coming down the road they tell us that uh, for example that a test is available within 24.5 days yet one of my colleagues John O'Connor from Cork while the meeting was taking place sought to um, book an NCT for his own car and the earliest date that was available in Cork was April of next year.
4: Mm. Now there was a, a, a nod Uh, explanation then uh, about getting tests quicker that if you waited a couple of weeks you might get one long before that because they released them in batches apparently.
7: That is correct. Uh, they released them in batches, and indeed, I availed of the emergency um, uh, uh, channel myself to mm. get my own carriage uh, NCT. But look, I mean, they have 1.5 million cars per year being tested at a cost of what is it, 40 45 euros, I think, per test now. Um, that's an awful lot of money for one organization to be taken in, not to have the staffing available to actually deliver the tests on time. Mm. And the tr- truth of the matter is. and and we will be asking for it here in in Leinster House. Uh, The Minister for Justice is going to have to make a statement which uh, will cover drivers um, uh, who are driving with vehicles that have not had an up-to-date NCT test. Mm. Uh, Again, assuming that they have an application put in and that they're awaiting a test. Mm. um, I did suggest
4: uh, on uh, Friday's programme that people print off uh, the test date, you know, when you when you've got your confirmation to print that off, so that if you're stopped by the guards, uh, perhaps they will use their discretion because we're being told it's a discretionary issue for the guardie uh, and decide not to summons you uh, if you uh, are engaged with the process as such
7: absolutely michael that's that's great advice so it is at least you have proof in the car that you have tried to um uh, uh, have your car nct mm. the same would apply for example people who are looking for motor taxation once you print off the document uh on on screen once you have filled in and paid the the motor tax uh, a guard that will more than likely be sympathetic to you if you don't mm. have the disc on screen
4: and you can go on a list for a cancellation as well can't you
7: Absolutely, there's a, a, an opportunity there to put yourself on the list for cancellations and see if one comes through. And it looks like, from what we were told at the committee, that a certain number of tests are held back, mm. um, uh, waiting to see if there's emergency. But look, I also see that uh, they're now talking about bringing in 22 staff from their Spanish operation mm. and uh, bringing in some 44 staff from the Philippines. Mm. Uh, it, it, it worries me that we don't have. Uh, people available in Ireland. There are still people unemployed in Ireland. Surely to God we could lay on uh, some sort of course and get them up to speed for this job.
4: Mm, I was surprised that they had staff in those countries, uh, but uh, that uh, appears to be the case. Uh, And uh, it's... uh, (laughs) Difficult to know how long this will go on for and what the impacts are. Will people not apply for an NCT? And is that dangerous? And what will it do to the fleet of cars? Because the NCT has seen a remarkable change in the quality of motor vehicles in this country since it first came into play.
7: I agree with you, Michael. It has indeed. And some of the old bangers we drove around in years ago. My God, I don't know how we didn't kill ourselves in them. But they have certainly improved the quality of road transport on on the roads these days. Um, there is also a problem, Michael, and that is that new cars are not available now. And um, so we're keeping our second-hand cars for longer uh, than we may have imagined in the first instance. Um, and in in such situations, it is vitally important that the vehicles we're driving are roadworthy and up to speed and the only way we can prove that is if we have the NCT. Now the NCT give a, um, a cop-out statement in what they've said to mm. the uh, Joint Committee and so far as they say oh well you know you're supposed to have your car roadworthy all year uh, long not just for the NCT test but it's the whole purpose of the NCT test mm. is that we ensure that at least on one day that car is perfectly serviceable mm. and uh, assuming it if it's serviceable on that day, it would still be perfectly serviceable for several months to come.
4: Yeah, well, uh, I'd be the wor- worst one to ask, certainly, I'm as a mechanic. <laughs> and if they find fault with it, it's uh, beyond me. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to be looking in the first instance. And I, I think that's uh, the point you're making, that that's the point of the test so that you can be told what needs to be done. <sighs>
7: absolutely absolutely and like I think most of us before we go for an NCT we bring our car to the local garage and we yep. have it completely serviced and we get them to do a pre mct on it mm. and tell us if there's going to be something wrong okay. I, I, I recall one day being in, in a, a queue for an NCT uh, with my rather uh, elderly car and there was a guy in front of me with a Mercedes that was going in for its first NCT and he failed he failed on a cracked lens right, okay. uh, mm-hmm. and he's indicated so, I mean, they are extremely good at what they do, but it is shocking that we find ourselves with, with a company that has 717, uh, 77 employees not able to deliver the service in, in, in a time that's timely for people.
4: OK, we'll leave it there for the moment, but thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell. Michael,
2: Michael Reid on, on LMFM. FM.
4: Now, uh, the government uh, looks set uh, to ban disposable vapes in this country, predominantly because of the amount of littering, but of course uh, there are other concerns. Let's speak to John Mallon, who's uh, the chair of Forest Ireland. Good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning.
8: I'm not the chair, I'm the
4: spokesperson. Oh, I beg your pardon. Spokesperson (laughs) of Forest Ireland. Uh, Well, okay, but uh, spokesperson for the pro-smoking group uh, and indeed the pro-vaping group uh, funded funded by the tobacco industry. Uh, What what do you make of of this uh, idea of banning disposable vapes?
8: Uh, sorry, Michael. I'm not letting you get away with that. We have never been pro-tobacco. Never. Okay. Full stop. Uh, people attempt to put uh, their audiences off by saying that uh, we're not pro-tobacco, uh, but what we very much are uh, in favour of is the freedom to choose and the freedom to choose tobacco if you wish to smoke, or the freedom to choose a drink if you wish to have it. That's very much where we come from. Just to set the record straight. Um, in terms of of uh, banning vapes, it seems kind of counterproductive uh, to. Was that uh, vaping was invented by a Chinese guy who was trying to to actually quit smoking himself and he, he looked into the psychology behind smoking and the habit the habit forming um, use of the fingers fingers to mouth and, and uh, inhaling exhaling all this sort of stuff and he came up with this little device uh, called the e cigarette Now, badly named because it isn't a cigarette as such, but it emulates. Uh, what a cigarette does for a smoker. Uh, much more so, for example, than a nicotine patch. Then after that, uh, the next question was, what would he put in this... It, most uh, the, the people don't understand this. Most of the liquid uh, in, in an e-cigarette uh, is water. Now there is nicotine then added to that, uh, and you can vary the, the strength of it um, from choice. Uh, but nicotine in itself is not a harmful uh, product. It, it's no more harmful than caffeine, according to the head of Ash in the UK several years ago. Um, nicotine is a naturally occurring chemical in nature, so. In the context, that isn't necessarily a worry. Um, But if if people, you know, we we have known, and you and I have talked about this in the past, that most people started smoking coming from school. And that's where they tried cigarettes. That's where they're passed around the place. Now, uh, Public Health UK has said that, that e-cigarettes are 99% safer than smoking. Mm. So the question you'd ask yourself for youth is concern, would you prefer the youth to be messing around with an e-cigarette or would you prefer them to be smoking a real cigarette? And uh, I think in the context of it, it is kind of counterproductive to have a product that could save a lot of uh, lives, a product that could could, uh, help people avoid taking up smoking in the first place uh, for the dangers that that, that are inherent in it, um, to ban it. Because mm. we've had we've had these nicotine replacement products on the shelf for years and they just aren't popular. They've never really taken off with smokers. And like I say, probably for the reasons that they don't emulate the act of smoking.
4: Mm. I'm surprised, to be honest with you, that you're not concerned uh, about young people putting a highly addictive substance into their bodies.
8: Now, you know, when you say highly addictive, uh, you know... Addiction is a much bandied about word. If it were highly addictive, it would be impossible to give up. Now, we have people who've been smoking all their lives, myself included. I smoked for 49 years, this highly addictive uh, product that you're talking about putting in my body, um, and I quit. Uh, And and there are more people who have quit smoking than are are smoking today. That's the reality of it. So highly addictive, gambling is highly addictive, but then there's a whole pile of things. Golf can be highly addictive for some fellas. Um, addiction is, is is basically a very strong habit and it's a habit that can and um, is broken regularly so nicotine nicotine the attraction of it is and, and uh, I've read a lot of papers on this uh, from the scientific community there's a, there's a chemical in the body ma- manufactures itself called dopamine and we associate it with pleasure so for example with coffee you get a, a dopamine hit to the body that's why people like their coffee uh, it, it, it just, it's, a, it, it's, it's like a kind of a mild upper and uh, uh, nicotine is exactly the same and has exactly the same effect. It isn't um, anything like the, you know, a strong drug would, would do, but it, it's a mild kind of a, a, an up, uh, an upper rather than a downer, if you like. Uh, and that's why people who try these things. The other mm. thing for children, as you know, and you probably all know that. Too, all,
4: all of that is complete and utter nonsense, John Cheney Are you hey, saying. Hey, are you, are you, name one thing I've said that's utter nonsense. That name it's, one not, thing. it's not particularly addictive. That it's like golf. Go- it I'm not particularly thinking about that, like, that, addict- it, that. It's like that. It's like golf. That it's like an addiction to golf. Well, you don't go is- into cold sweats <laughs> it, it, or not be able <laughs> to sleep at night if you don't play golf,
8: uh, Michael. There are very few people from 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 uh, quitting uh, smoking can't get to sleep at night.
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
3: Sick of being upsold at gyms? are going to cold sweats. What? That's nonsense. That's
4: nonsense. No, it's
8: not I nonsense. I no, I think, I think you, you must be mixing up talking with heroin, perhaps.
4: And uh, they say that. that the addiction is as strong as heroin, if not stronger
8: well, then if that were the case, why aren't we getting something from the government, uh, like the, they give to the heroin users to quit? But because they, they know, n- they know on their heart they, and soul that you can quit if you have the, the willpower to do so. Well, what they and give you,
4: heroin I, users is something very similar to heroin, which is called methadone. Uh, exactly. And what they give to cigarette smokers to give up uh, is alternative ways of, of using tobacco. So it's the drug that's used to get people off cigarettes, and that was the idea with e-cigarettes, before they uh, turned into things that... Look like uh, things of lipstick. Well, I mean, do you do do like you, a, do, you, do, you, do you use I mean, these bubblegum tasting things that look like lipstick yourself? <laughs>
8: I, I gave up vaping a long time back. Okay, no, but who I, does thirteen-year-old girls? The, you see, the, the, the beauty of it is thirteen-year-old
4: thirteen-year-old girls do because it's seen as being cool. I, I mean, anecdotally, that's,
8: anecdotally, anecdotally, I haven't seen
4: any. Have you not? Well, I've seen quite a a few and uh, I think anybody who's working with young people will tell you that they're very, very popular with young people because of this highly addictive substance that's in them. And once you use them for any length of time, you're going to be hooked and then you have a habit and you need to fund that habit. And it's an expensive thing. It's a chain around the neck. And that's why sometimes you'll see some of uh, these vaping machines on chains around people's necks.
8: Well, if that's the case, Michael, why aren't we banning the, the pharmaceutical nicotine, uh, the, the, the 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 pills and the patches and everything? They're, they're a for the reasons job. for exactly the job for exactly th- into the
4: bloodstream for exactly the same reasons that you outlined a moment ago. They're not attractive. Uh, they are used as a, a, a medicine for medicinal reasons to stop that. Cold sweat, not being able to sleep at night—thing that happens when you go to give up cigarettes. Uh, so oh, that I you, have, so have, that you can continue, you? so that you can continue to feed your body with the drug nicotine, <laughs> and that you can wean off it over a period of time. That is what nicotine replacements are designed to do. These other things are designed to be a new habit to replace the lost business to the tobacco companies from uh, the drop in the sale of cigarettes.
8: I don't know where you got all that nonsense from. Look, it's exactly the same nicotine. In actual fact, the pharmaceutical companies buy their nicotine from the people who, who grow the tobacco uh, because the, the tobacco plant is the strongest yielder of nicotine in nature. You get nicotine in tomatoes as well, of course, and in potatoes, but the, 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 the tobacco plant is the one that will give you the strongest yield of it, in other words, the, the most of it per waste. So that's where, that's where the nicotine for the pharmaceutical products involved. It's exactly the same nicotine, and. It's people putting in their body and according to your thesis uh, that should have the, the young people actually shaking with fear at the idea of giving up their patch uh, and waking in the middle of the night without one it's an absolute nonsense Michael nicotine isn't that strong or that, that incredible a uh, product anything but I, I look, look I've, been, I've been down the route of giving up smoking using e-cigarettes and yeah. then when I, was fi- when I was finished and happy, I was off the, <coughs> the cigarettes, I turned my concentration to giving up the e-cigarettes, yeah. which, because they were only there for one purpose, as far as I was concerned.
4: Yeah, there was a great quote, I think it was Mark Twain, um, giving up smoking is easy. I do it every day. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and smokers know how addicted they are, and That's know okay. that it's not easy to give them up, because no. they are I so I didn't say addicted. it was
8: easy. I didn't say it was easy. I didn't say it was easy. Have you you ever
4: met anybody who said it was impossible that they had tried everything and still couldn't give up?
8: I've heard people uh, make attempts and be unsuccessful. Yes, absolutely. I'll tell the truth on that. Um, But not impossible. Uh, They'll try again at another point if if that's what they wish to do. I've heard of people who are smoking quite happily and don't wish to give them up. I've heard of doctors dealing with people in their early 80s who smoked all their lives Mm. and told them to continue smoking because to give up now would would, would create too many complications. Um, There's a whole variety of stories around this.
4: Where did you hear that?
8: I I read that recently from the US um, but it was just it was, it was if you like it was uh, in, in, what, what, in the context of a, a certain sympathy towards the smoker. Uh, Why would you get somebody of eighty five years of age to quit something they've been doing all their lives?
4: Was that some publication funded by the tobacco industry that was uh, uh, the, 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 uh, from the ni- fr- from the ni- fr- from the ni- from, from the nineteen fifties? Was it with Humphrey Bogart on the front? Asher Michael, you going to take this seriously? For God's for sake! Talk? No, well, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you're making a, a, a mockery of people's addictions. No, I'm not making a mockery of it at all. People do well, that, I mean, you can't, you, addiction can't, addiction is, you can't go on the radio and say that doctors are telling people in their 80s to keep smoking. when That's utter nonsense. I, you know I
8: didn't say that. I said that I didn't say doctors generally. I said that I read in an article of one doctor as yeah. an example. Well, they should they, be... They, 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 they should be what? Somebody of 85 years of age. No, you the, really think they're going to live much longer if they, get, uh, if they quit smoking. Uh, 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 they run into all sorts of complications. I, they think try that,
4: to I, think, I, I think the doctor should be disparaged. I'm
8: <laughs> Well that, it didn 't say whether he was or he wasn't in the, mm. in the article, um, but that, that's not the point you 're on about e cigarettes i think e cigarettes would be counterproductive to introduce any sort of a ban or even a restriction on them uh, e cigarettes should be encouraged in the u k that they're putting them on the national health uh, that's how much they believe in mm. them uh, and, and uh, yeah, smokers have given them free in
4: pharmacies yeah if, if they agree yeah, to and there's, uh, and there's a great case to be made for e cigarettes as a way of giving up cigarettes uh, and Just to have plain e-cigarettes that don't have flavours, don't have colours, don't attract young people, aren't seen to be cool uh, and are, are used for giving up cigarettes, not to start a new habit
8: but you see the whole idea it's like everything Michael that you, you, you buy in the supermarket uh, everything that you buy has, has got flavouring to it every every piece of food you buy in the US is pumped full of sugar flavourings are put there to try and make the, you know there's, there's so, an argument so you that enjoy it. You there's an argument that you wouldn't eat a lot of meat uh, if, it, if it didn't have flavour well that's, so that's exactly
4: it. the argument take the flavour out and we won't vape very much and young people won't vape that's exactly the argument
8: yes and what they'll do then is just smoke instead which is what we know and that's been going on since the 1950s as you, you mentioned earlier yourself, it's been going on since the Second World War but if you give them something that's an alternative and they take it up then fair enough, there is a point you reach with that, where you say to yourself, why am I bothering with this, there's a point where children will grow out of it, but with smoking people we, we know from experience, people who start to smoke and smoke all their lives
4: Okay, and John. so, you know, what do you do which,
8: which, which evil do you wish
4: Alright, well, there are the arguments, thanks for having them with us as always much appreciated, John Mallon who is uh, the spokesperson for Forest Ireland. Michael,
2: Michael Reid on, on LMFM. FM.
4: Let's listen back once again to local uh, TD Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael speaking in uh, the Dáil last week, and some serious allegations uh, that were made against a service provider working with Ukrainian refugees and Louth County Council.
9: It's women and children we're talking about, and I accept it, the. Policy of the department is to assist them all. But what happened in Killarney is entirely unacceptable from my perspective. And my question to you, Minister, is that will you set up an independent advocacy service for Ukrainians who have complaints, serious complaints about the way that they're being treated? And my experience, when I sent a complaint to your department without prejudice, looking for an independent inquiry by the department into it, what happened was the service provider and the County Council went to those women and their children and told them they shouldn't have gone to a public rep, that we had no role in dealing with this issue. And the fact that people had been shouted at, intimidated they believe, punished for coming to me. And also one of the complaints they had was a service provider employee was threatening that they would be sent back to the Ukraine if they didn't withdraw their complaints. That is entirely and totally unacceptable. And we need an independent advocacy service that Ukrainians, and these are mothers and children, will be properly and appropriately listened to and, and independently investigate serious complaints. And what happened in County Loud is unacceptable. And the, you know, the Department hasn't come back to me. No, it's not you personally, Minister. They haven't come back to me with an answer as how they're going to deal with these complaints. And that's over six weeks ago
4: now. Over six weeks ago. I must say I found that uh, to be exceptionally shocking. Ferguson O'Dowd uh, joins us now. We're also joined by John Lannon, who's uh, the CEO of Durris. And good morning to both of you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, as uh, I think you both know, uh, we made contact with Louth County Council and asked them for a statement in relation to this, which I'll just read Read for our listeners now. It says, Louth County Council has a robust complaints protocol and procedure for Ukrainian refugees to ensure the most efficient and timely response to concerns and complaints. This process has been communicated to the refugees by the Council regularly. In September, Louth County Council dealt with the concerns raised by Ukrainian refugees in one of its accommodation sites. But the statement says, Louth County Council refutes allegations that it told refugees not to engage with local representatives, namely Ferguson O'Dowd. What do you make of that, Deputy O'Dowd?
10: Well, I'm concerned about it, but I repeat the facts as I understand them and I'm clear in what I've been told. The the council at a meeting uh, said that they received reps from elected members about the operation of this particular centre. And they said that elected members have no role in managing any of these sites and that if they had complaints, They must go through uh, the service provider, and if they were unhappy, then with the council. Now, the, the people who made the complaint, some of them have been in touch with me. I forward them to the Department of Children and Integration for an independent assessment because they were serious. And uh, I'm very unhappy with the outcome. But that's not to say that Loud County Council hasn't been doing an excellent job in provision of services right around the county. Mm-hmm. They have six different sites.
4: I think they recognise uh, that. How did the,
10: they, they deal with complaints? With problem.
4: I think they recognise uh, in the statement that there was a problem. They say they dealt with uh, complaints in September.
10: Well, I mean, I, I haven't had my... But that that may be their view on it. The people who were at that meeting told me that they felt punished. Uh, that's their view, that they felt sheltered at. And they felt that they they felt that it was they were being intimidated because what they were actually doing was complaining about they had issues, alleged issues about a service provider mm. and that the last thing they expected in an investigation, those complaints that the service provider would be, you know, that a representative would be present at a meeting yeah. where they would be discussing them with the council or with other people. And that's why I think you need an independent that's yeah. separate from the councils and the service providers, you know, that would look into these issues right. independently and examine them fairly. Uh, and, openly. Uh, uh, and somebody so threatened
4: that, to uh, send them back to Ukraine.
10: Well, I think they they were told, that, 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 as I understand it, they were told that we were sent back to, to a certain hotel in West Dublin. And in fact, what a lady said to me was that she would prefer to go back to the Ukraine than go back into the situation she was complaining about. OK. So, uh, so they, they, like, but... They, we're, we're, I'm sorry, Jones,
4: I, I thought you had said in the doll that they were threatened so they'd be sent... I
10: did say that, and I believe I was told that... Uh, and that's that's my that's my that's my recollection of that conversation I,
4: I, I have a picture of a hothead uh, who's really out of order uh, and uh, you've raised this issue uh, and uh, you were talking about very vulnerable people coming from a a, a war torn country Warzone. and all, all that goes with that. Uh, you've uh, raised it with the Council, obviously. You raised it uh, last week uh, with uh, Minister O'Gorman, Roderick O'Gorman. Uh, he said he talked to you afterwards. Did he talk to you afterwards? Uh, um, after? I
10: forwarded him uh, all, the, all the complaints that I received, yes. And uh, I have no doubt that they will be investigated. You see, the problem was that the department told me that they would investigate them independently. Uh, and then they actually changed their mind. Now I don't know why they changed their mind. I don't know that process. And they haven't up to last week. They haven't come back to me with the outcome of of my parliamentary question to right. them on it. My correspondence. So mm. I have put in a freedom of information request as to what actually happened. Okay. So clearly I'm not happy. But I think the main thing is that there has to be a go-between. When there are complaints, when there are language differences, when there are cultural differences, it's very important that people who may not have great English are entirely understood.
4: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and I I want to go to John Lannan. I just want to ask you, though, you said it was six weeks ago. I I take it you've been looking for information and finally ran out of patience and then said what you said on the floor at the doll.
0: Yes,
10: absolutely, absolutely. I had to put in a Freedom of Information request.
4: Okay, stay with me, Ferguson, if you will. John Lannan, what, what do you make of what we're hearing?
11: Um, Good morning. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first thing to say is that there are individuals and councils and departmental officials working flat out to accommodate tens of thousands Mm -hmm. of people who have arrived from Ukraine. But there there are three interrelated problems here. The first, if if I could speak in in general terms, is that there are poor conditions in many of the contracted accommodation centres, and that's often combined with inadequate staff training. And this is particularly problematic when you... Um, bear in mind that we're talking about people who have um, been traumatised, they've been displaced from, from their homes, they're in very difficult situations. But we've seen, we've heard of of um, places that are still like building sites, lack of space, lack of privacy, um, inadequate cooking facilities. Um, we have heard of of threats of people being evicted as as well um, the second problem as, as the deputy has um, highlighted is that there is no independent complaints um, process um, within the department of children who have responsibility in this um, area at the moment and the third um, the problem which, which um, is, is, is even broader and looking more long term is that we're still in crisis response mode when it comes to um, providing accommodation for Ukrainians and also for international protection applicants here in Ireland. And, and there is an over-reliance on temporary and emergency accommodation. And when you combine this with the fact that the standards are poor, often the staff aren't adequately trained, there is no independence um process it, it does lead to um, chaotic situations like we're talking about now um, and also like what happened in Killarney last week.
4: So what should be done about this specific complaint, do you think?
11: I, I think that the um, th- there is always a responsibility on the Department of Children to investigate these concerns. And as I said, this, this is countrywide um, there needs to be a more responsive attitude to problems. They need to pre um, pre-empt or avoid many of the situations by ensuring that there are better standards in the accommodation centres, by ensuring that staff are trained. At the moment, um, it's likely that somebody could get a contract if they're... Um, premises meets fire and safety regulations and some other environmental um, regulations, but when it comes to issues like child protection, when it comes to the particular services and needs of people who are experienced or have experienced trauma, then they're they're wholly inadequate. And 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 as we're um, finding ourselves now in a situation where we expect that you know the temporary protection directive has been extended by. By, by Europe for another 12 months up to March 2024, it's quite clear that people will not be able to return to Ukraine in the short term. Mm. We're going to have to put a plan in place for the mid to long term to ensure that we can provide adequate and appropriate accommodation um, and services mm. for people from Ukraine.
4: Okay, but if, if um, the incident is, or incidents, are, as Fergus O'Dowd describes them. Uh, We have a a real problem, don't we, that's gone on uh, for the last six weeks and continues today, uh, whereby an already traumatised people are being subjected to more trauma by somebody who's shouting at them, intimidating them uh, and telling them that they'll send them back to Ukraine, which in itself really is beyond belief that anybody would take it upon themselves to make such a, a threat. But you would have to conclude that if that is what is happening if those reports are accurate that either the service provider uh, shouldn't uh, be providing the service or the people working for the service provider need to be replaced.
11: Absolutely and and there should be an immediate inspection of any um, serviced accommodation centres that have been contracted by the department and corrective action taken to address that. And if the corrective action is that the contract needs to be revoked and if people need to be moved to someplace where where they are um, safer, then that needs to happen. And, and as I said, the, the problem at the moment is that there are no standards being applied. Contracts are being handed out. There is no follow-up in terms of the, um, the well-being of people in those centres. Mm. Now, I would have to emphasise here it, once again that there are individuals, there are organisations, there are agency staff like mm. the HSE and INDUSLA who are doing great work right across the country. Oh,
4: absolutely. Sure yeah, they're
11: yeah. using mm. their their mm. mechanisms mm. to address problems as as they come to their attention. But mm. look, this is, um, it, it is, this is still crisis response mm. mode for seven, eight months. Into yeah. the arrival
4: of Ukrainians mm. here in Ireland now, when we. But, you know, uh, better, uh, on the other hand, John, I mean, there may not be standards as uh, such. Uh, maybe there, that means uh, in terms of uh, the uh, accommodation standards, the bedding that uh, is made available to people, or the privacy issues or whatever. But there are standards that do apply because they apply to everybody. Nobody uh, needs to be subjected to that type of treatment, uh, intimidation, or threatening behaviour.
11: No, indeed. And and it's very worrying when um, th- there are staff in uh, centres that are behaving like this. I mean, one wouldn't accept it in a hotel if you went in to, um, you know, to, to take a room for a night or for, for a couple of nights. No. So when money is being paid to service providers around the country to um, accommodate Ukrainians, it shouldn't be accepted or, or tolerated either. But again, The the problem here is that while we've had years, you know, we've had 22 years of inadequate um, services and poor standards in direct provision centres, Um, We are now at a point where HICWA are being engaged to do proper independence inspections of permanent direct provision centres, although there are still a number of steps to overcome before that will become a reality. The difficulty is that we have so many temporary and emergency accommodation centres now for Ukrainians and for asylum seekers around the country that are not being monitored, that there's no oversight of, there's an adequacy of training of Mm. staff, there are poor conditions and, and that cannot okay.
4: be acceptable. Sure. Fergus, I'd uh, just to conclude, uh, I take it uh, there's this ongoing concern for uh, the refugees who are at uh, the centre of this complaint.
10: Well, there has been some changes since then. An undertaking has been given uh, that certain people won't be there anymore uh, but I can't say too much on the air about that, and also issues in relation to physical complaints about the building. There's a new process in place which they will be addressed. So when a complaint is made, it will be dealt with, recorded, and the person will be got back to it. So there's good things that have come out of it. But clearly, we, we need the changes. I think the independent complaints, uh, with somebody with knowledge of language and culture, culture I can't I can't overestimate the importance of that, should be doing that. And obviously, getting people who wish to get employed, who have skills in the local community, is hugely important to offer them opportunities as well. So, you okay. know, I think there will be changes and I will get back to you, Michael, when I have my FOI. And
4: okay, and we look forward to that. Thank you indeed uh, Thank for joining you. us this morning. That's uh, Gal TD for Loud and Ferguson O'Dowd. We were also speaking to the CEO of Durris, John Lannan.
2: Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM.
4: The Director General of one of uh, the six banned Palestinian civil society organisations, Al Haq, is in Ireland. Al Haq was founded in 1979, the first human rights organisation in the Arab world. Shawan Jabareen was Amnesty International's first Palestinian prisoner of conscience and has worked for years promoting human rights. He'll be speaking this evening in Navin at 7 o'clock in Siptu's Dan Shaw centre and joins us now. And A very good morning to you Shawan Jabrin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. It's a pleasure to get the opportunity to talk to you uh, and to welcome you back to Ireland uh, because uh, you have been here before but it wasn't always possible for you to travel to this country after spending six years in an Israeli prison without charge or trial and indeed after being banned from travel. You weren't able to come here in 2010 to collect an award from the Irish Centre of Human Rights, uh, but you will be speaking in Navan this evening, and I take it you'll be asking people to help protect human rights in Palestine and dismantle Israel's apartheid. Uh,
0: thank you, Michael. I'm so sorry my voice has not helped me well because it was infected by flu that oh. I got, you know, and my uh, way to here. Uh, anyway,
4: mm. it's very unfortunate. Will uh, you be able to speak this evening?
0: <laughs> I will try to do my best. You okay. Know. <laughs> okay. okay. I will. I, I will speak my signals. You know, mm. and my my heart signals to the people. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, yes. Anyway, uh, yes. Tonight I will. I'm going to Nazan. Uh, this is the first time for me uh, to Lebanon before I used to be in different places Cork, uh, Galway Dublin and other other counties but uh, this is the first time in Nevin uh, I would like to share to express you know our experience in the field of human rights mainly these days in Palestine and what it means you know mm. uh, even if the Israelis try to designate us as a terrorist organization to silence us, uh, to close us, uh, but our mission is to defend people's rights and justice and rule of law. Hmm. And we will continue in that.
4: Yeah, you're uh, a, a they, are,
0: they are trying to defend ourselves. No, we will continue defending the people's rights and we will continue defending you know, the victims' rights and holding the criminals accountable. This is the main thing that we established for, that it's not to sit, you know, just to defend ourselves, to say, hey, guys, we are here. We are not here, there. No, 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 no. This is our mission, that there are criminals there they are committing their war crimes, crimes against humanity, and no one holding them accountable because of that. They continue on that. What we are living there, it's an apartheid regime. It's a colonialism also. It's completely different from an ordinary occupation that recognized in international a humanitarian law or a human rights law. That's what we are living in. It's beyond an ordinary occupation. That's the issue I would like to share with the people, to discuss it with them, to hear. I'm sure that um, in a friend, let me say, society, public uh, people, but uh, it's good, you know, to uh, share with them uh, what's going on uh, there.
4: Mm. How do you feel uh, about being described or called a, a terrorist? I think uh, the Israeli Supreme Court described you as a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a human rights campaigner by day and a terrorist by night. And
0: I look at it as a recognition, to be honest with you. And uh, when things comes from the criminals. Uh, this is also an indicator that you are in the right track. This is how I deal with things like that. It comes from the criminals, and uh, not from you know those they do believe about justice and the human rights uh, and rule of law. No, it's coming by those they are committing the crimes. They are the killers of the children. Uh, that's the case. This is a reality. You know, I'm not exaggerating when I say that they are killing children. This is a reality. This is a daily practice in Palestine. That's when they discriminate against Palestinians, when they don't let Palestinians to unite, you know, to, to be united. Uh, the families, I mean, to be united. And they separate between the mom and her child the one who is one years old in Gaza and the mom, she is in Ramallah. And they don't want them to be united. And in this case, it's not a humanitarian case under their definition. This is an issue. The people, they have to know this. The criminals, the terrorists, those they kill civilians on a daily basis. Those they terrorized civilians, they are the terrorists.
4: That's the case. What do you think uh, of countries like uh, America that show and give such great support to Israel?
0: I think the Americans, they have double standards when it comes to the rule of law when it comes to international law. Uh, We see what's going on now in uh, Ukraine and their reaction. I can't compare victims with victims. But I'm speaking about the reactions of state, you know, like the United States. Uh, I can't say that what they are doing now, though it's bad or good, but the question is why they are selective when it comes, for instance, to react against atrocities or illegal practices or crimes? why they are selective, why they, you know, <clears throat> dealing and treating Palestinians in a different way. This is the issue. Another thing is they are supporting Israel unconditionally and blindly to be honest with you. That's the issue. Without support by the U.S. and other countries, Israel will not continue its atrocities and the ignorance of the Palestinians' rights. By support of the Americans, the Israelis, they look at it as an encouragement. It's encouraging Israel to continue their crimes. This is how I look at it. But at the same time, we see that at the public level, things are changing, and changing dramatically, to be honest with you. It's a matter of time that things will change, also in the U.S.
4: How much time? Uh, I think... Um... There's been this conflict for as long as I, I can remember uh, and there's been so many a- efforts uh, and uh, attempts to bring a, a, about a solution. Uh, does that lie in a two-state solution?
0: Look, uh, we are speaking about rights and fundamental rights. One of that self-determination, a right of return to the refugees, to their homes, to their lands to their property. This is, it's simple, it's ABC, you know, as a right and a fundamental right. We are speaking about sovereignty over, you know, land, natural resources, borders, yourself. That's, this is what we call, now if it's one state solution, one democratic state solution, two state solutions, it's not that big matter. The question is the rights, that the Israelis, they are not dealing with the Palestinians as a people, to be honest to you. They are not seeing Palestinians, even when they planning. You know, they are doing their planning or something like that. They do that on white sheet, as if they don't see Palestinians, they are exist. That's the case. And when they see some problems here, oh, there is a Palestinian community, there is a Palestinian you know, village, there is a Palestinian uh, city here or there, they put like a circle around that place, not to expand here, and how to avoid going here and there. This is the case. This is how the Israelis are dealing and treating and, you know, uh, acting against Palestinians. The same will not continue forever. This issue will not continue. You can't continue as an oppressive regime forever. It's a matter of time. When I say matter of time, I mean it. Maybe it's not months. maybe it's not a few years, but I think there is no future for injustice and oppressive regime. This is what we learned. You, as an Irish, you you were under colonial regime for 800 years. We will not stay as you 800 years for sure. It will be just years, one decade, two decades. That and if there is one has to concern from the future, not the
4: Palestinians. Okay, well, I don't think a a little dose of uh, the flu is going to impact on your ability to make your case. (laughs) I think people can expect a a very interesting evening when they hear you speak uh, this evening in in Navin. Uh, A pleasure to speak to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. This uh, event takes place in uh, SIP2's Dan Shaw Centre at 7 o'clock this evening, and our our thanks to Shawan Jabirin, who is a the general director of Al-Haq, for joining us on the programme today Michael,
2: Michael Reed, Reed on, on
4: LMFM Now yeah, let's talk uh, about uh, the uh, report uh, from Simon today it's uh, the 27th locked out of uh, the market uh, report and we're joined by Wayne Stanley who's Head of Policy and Communications with the Simon Communities of Ireland Good morning to you Wayne and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning I think we're all taken aback by the headlines today that no properties were available last month uh, for people on standard HAP payments and just 35 for those who were on the enhanced rate. Is this as bad as it's ever been or worse for that matter?
12: Yeah, it's the first time in the series of these reports that we've had no properties available within a standard HAP rate um, and it's the lowest level of properties um, when you take in the account of the discretion. And remember that discretion outside of the Dublin area was increased from 20% to 35%. Um, only a few short weeks ago. Mm. So what we're seeing here really reflected in this report is exactly what the Simon communities around Mm. Ireland are seeing when they're supporting people to try and get out of homelessness into the private rental market or avoid homelessness um, because they need a new new home um, and they're trying to find it in the private rental market. In essence, we're at functional zero. We can talk about the 35 Mm. properties, but really when you split that across of the, course, yeah mm-hmm. the, the different areas and across the four different household types that we've looked at here. Uh, really, we are looking at functional zero.
4: Okay, so if there's nowhere to live, what do people do?
12: Um, so one of the options is people are um, having to double up, having to go back to families and friends, stay in box rooms, sleep on people's couches. Um, there's also uh, some people who are able to maybe top up above mm. the... Uh, half limits, That's def- that's been happening for, as we know, for years. Mm, of year. course,
4: yeah, but it it, it, it may not make it? much difference, but I is, take it from your report, because there's so few properties for rent, regardless of how much money you have.
12: Absolutely. I mean, that is that is a big problem. So what we need is we need more supply in the system. The government at the moment are looking at um, an eviction moratorium for, an, for a number of months. We would welcome that. We think that's an important uh, initiative because that will give us breathing space in the system and maybe help keep some people in the homes that they're in, mm. but it's not a solution to the crisis. The only solution is more secure affordable accommodation, so we want the government to look at uh, look again at the possibilities of what we can do around the high level of vacancy we have around the country. We want the government to uh, implement the Simon Homeless Prevention Bill, which gives us a bit more time to work with people who are at risk of homelessness. Um, There's also, which is currently being rolled out, a a tenant in situ scheme, where if somebody is on a housing assistance payment or a rent supplement payment and is at risk of homelessness because the landlord is uh, setting up the local authorities can step in and buy that property and keep the person in the home that they they're currently in while bringing that home obviously then into the public housing stock which mm. which will help to increase it and have a long-term impact and okay. um, yeah. that is being rolled out yeah. I think about 300 properties have been purchased so far but we need to see it uh, ramped up to help keep people out of out of homelessness but as I say the long-term trajectory mm. of this is we need to ramp up uh,
4: social and affordable public housing. We hear that before, of course, Wayne. I mean, yeah, we're, all, yeah. we're, all, we're all baffled by this. Uh, it's over a decade since we had a crisis and one that needed to be prioritised and uh, successive governments have been throwing everything at it, they say, and the problem continues to get worse. You looked at what was available to rent on three days over September, uh, just Three hundred and twenty-two properties, ninety-two properties, three hundred ninety-two properties. But that was over sixty percent less than a year previous.
12: Yeah, and if we look back to the previous peak of the um, homeless crisis was in twenty nineteen. We've had two months now with record numbers, but the previous peak to that was in October twenty nineteen, and we had a lockout of the the market report then. And at that time, there was fifteen hundred properties available. Um, and of those, 469 were available within the discretion. Mm. So that goes to show you just where, and that was at the previous peak. Uh, we're at the peak now, and it really is, the, the depth of the crisis really is hard to convey. Um, we, we're, we're, the services are stretched um, to, to breaking point. We're looking, I'm talking to our, uh, you know, frontline staff who are brilliant, and are optimistic and want to support people but it's really hard to see the horizon now of how we get past this so this calls for crisis a response: A true crisis response uh, from government, and that's what, what we'll be calling for. We believe there is capacity. The census night showed 166,000 vacant properties. Now we all know mm. nothing is straightforward in housing, and it's not. It may not be exactly 166,000, but there is a huge capacity there that can definitely be taken advantage of. Local authorities will tell you that, the housing will tell you that. We need to put in place. Uh, the mechanisms that's going to work with the owners of those properties and bring them back into use quickly.
4: Okay, Uh, there's speculation that there could be a a ban on evictions moratorium in, in December. Would you be concerned that landlords might decide to sell up before then?
12: Um, I think think speculation is always a bad thing, so I think we need to make that decision, make it quickly and implement it. I think uh, landlords also have to... There has to be a very clear signal to landlords that this is a crisis response to a crisis, and they're not part of the problem, they're part of the solution. So we'd also encourage the government over the time of any moratorium on evictions to be engaging with and Mm. working with landlords on the front line to find out why are they leaving,
4: what can we do to... But you you understand the point that if you serve a notice to quit before the moratorium is in play, it stands, doesn't it? And would that be of concern to you, that people will see what's coming down the line and decide to get out now?
12: we don't yet know the full uh, sort of legal obviously I'm not privy to yeah, what mm-hmm. the outcome would be but the point of a moratorium on eviction is that it should come in at the point at which it comes in um, and that should help to keep people uh, in their accommodation regardless of when the notice of quiz has been served
4: okay okay alright so that that would be postponed uh, till after the moratorium that, is uh, lifted a okay number of weeks yeah All right, well, I I don't know. Shocking is probably a a word that's overused uh, because uh, every time we say it's shocking, it seems to be a problem that gets worse. Uh, But it it will seem a very shocking situation this morning uh, with so few properties available and the position that that puts people in. Wayne, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme as always. Thank you. Wayne Stanley is Head of Policy and Communications with the Simon Communities of Ireland. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye
1: the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from nine on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie lmfm podcasts with cnc carpets we bring the showroom to you or book a new showroom appointment on 087-660-4237